0: Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. The love of God is very very important because it is where we experience fellowship with God and the abundant life of joy and peace and freedom from guilt, wholeness and hope and such kind and such things. And most of our modern day worship songs are about God's love and our love for Him. And, it, and, and so it should be. I'm not saying that most of them should be that, but we should be uh, focusing on that because that is critical. That is central to the whole uh, uh, matter at hand. However, we need something else as well, and what we need is the fear of the Lord, because, you see, it's the fear of the Lord… It is so important because that is what keeps us within the bounds of that relationship that i just mentioned in the uh, in the fellowship we can have with god so that we can experience the abundant life of uh, joy and peace and freedom from guilt and wholeness and hope and reward and such things if we just emphasize the the love of god and we ignore the fear of god we do great damage in fact I would venture to say this. I'll go as far as to say this. You will never renew yourself and you will never renew the church unless you understand this matter of the fear of the Lord and make it an important part of your life because it is what keeps us within the bounds of God's love where we experience all those things. Once you get out of the boundaries of what is required in a relationship with God, then you don't experience those things, the love of God, um, as you would in the abundant life. Does that make sense? Which is why the Solomon and David said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. That's where it all starts, because that's what keeps you in those bounds tethered there where you can experience and find the love of God. This is a universal spiritual principle, and so we're going to start with the nations. The nations need to fear God, and then we're going to talk about the church needs to fear the Lord as well. God expects the nations to fear Him. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with what? Uh, Church, you can preach back at me. What uh, What are you supposed to do? Serve the Lord with? Fear and rejoice. You'd think he'd say, serve the Lord with love. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It almost sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. As we'll see, God loves the nations, but He expects them to behave in in certain manners. Let's start with the fact that God actually loves the nations. We We actually have to understand this. Even in the context, when we're talking about the fear of the Lord, we need to understand that God loves and wants the nations to be saved. He said, for example, that He owned all the land. Leviticus twenty-five, twenty-three said, the land is mine. And God said that He distributed to Israel and all the nations alike. Sometimes people just have this idea, and you're, gonna, you're going to hear those kinds of objections out there, that why does your faith believe that God just gave Israel their land? And suddenly you're on the defensive. But the Scriptures actually teach us that God gives a, gave land to all the nations. Amos says, Are you not, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites from the upper Nile? Declares the Lord, did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, Kaphtor or Crete, and the Arameans, or Syrians, from Kerr? <coughs> Deuteronomy 2 says, The Israelites were not allowed to take land from the Edomites, the Moabites, or the Ammonites, because God had given land to those nations. And when they passed through those nations on the way to the promised land, God said, don't you take anything from them without paying them for it. You may not just take it from them. Do you see? Uh, The the point that I'm trying to make here is uh, he loves Israel, but he loves the nations also. Aren't you glad? You're from the nations. Uh, You and I are. Israel had to pay for that. So God loved, the, loved other nations so much that He set Israel in the midst of them. And that's what He says Ezekiel Ezekiel 5.5. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I've set in the center of the nations with countries all around. Why, why did He do that? To be a blessing. Remember what He said in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4 in the Abrahamic covenant. And He said... Uh, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great, and you're, uh, I'm going to bless you so that through you the nations of the earth may be what? Blessed. The whole point of it was not just to set his love on Israel. Israel was a kingdom of priests, just like we are called a kingdom of priests, spiritual priests and she was a she was called to be a kingdom of priests to the other nations that's how the that's how that's how we got the scriptures that's how we got messiah israel has already been a blessing to the nations is it not true that's through whom we we got that's how the, the blessings that came through her is how we got saved and that's why he set her right in the center to be a blessing and a light Uh, Think of Isaiah 63. Now, I know Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, when it talks about the light that would draw them, he's talking specifically there, the prophet is, about, uh, about Messiah. But not in Isaiah 60, verse 3. In Isaiah 60, verse 3, the context says, it indicates very clearly that he's talking about Israel itself. And he says, "'Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn.'" God wanted the nations to know the Lord too. And so we see the Queen of Sheba as an example coming there to see uh, what God was doing there. Second, not only does God love the nations, he, um, because He loves them, He uses progressive judgments on them to warn and draw them back. When they're away from Him. Naam 1:3 says, "The Lord is slow to anger." That's interesting that you find a verse like that in the Old Testament, when you consider that so many people think that the Old Testament is about, just about the wrath of God, there's no grace in there. It's not true. He's slow to anger, just like Peter said in the New Testament, where he said, "He is patient with you, not willing that any should perish here." He says, he's slow to anger. Isn't that amazing? And so he uses progressive judgments. Otherwise, he would have just come and wiped all the nations out already. So first he sends prophets to warn the nations. In Jeremiah 7, he says, I've persistently... Think about that word. Think about the word you're reading there. Persistently. That's patience. That's grace. Sent all my servants and prophets to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline the ear, but stiffened their neck. Do you know that God is still sending prophets today? He's still sending prophets to the nations. I think of a book that I've uh, I've referred to before and I shared uh, an example of it in the marketplace leaders but and it's about, it's one of my favorite Estheron Kim. And uh, she and during the uh, the Japanese occupation of North uh, well of Korea, the whole peninsula, uh there, Esther On Kim is a Korean and uh, a Korean believer, a Korean mother, and Japanese father. And uh, the Japanese uh, came and they were doing, you know, they were committing atrocities. And one day the Spirit of God spoke to her that she was to warn the Japanese government as follows, and I'm quoting, that Japan will be punished and be, now listen to this, and be burnt and destroyed by sulfur rain unless she repents and turns from this course of destruction. Now, I want to ask you a question. Did that happen? Oh, yes, it did happen. An elderly, now think about this, an elderly Korean man, another man, Elder Park, living in another city was told by the Spirit to go to Pyongyang, where she was, and to see a Miss An. <laughs> by name. He had, never, he, he had never heard of this woman, he had never seen this woman, and never met the woman, and uh, so he went to... Uh, to the city, and he listened, and the Spirit directed him. It, it, you know, it almost sounds, it, uh, sounds like the story of Cornelius and the, and the servants he sent to find Peter, and uh, they go, right, go, go right to the correct door. God's Spirit is still working today in the same way He was working then. Do you believe that? Oh, He is. And He went to the correct door, and He knocked on it, and she answered, And uh, he said, are you Miss on?" And she said, yes. And then he said, the Holy Spirit uh, guided me here to tell you this. And I quote, God wants to use you to warn the Japanese. Now, think about this. Japanese occupation? Are you serious? And how are they going to get out of the country country through all these checkpoints? And how are they going to get on a ship? And how are they going to get into Japan? And when they're in Japan, how are they going to get into the imperial diet? past all those armed guards and checkpoints. And yet, miraculously, the two of them went. They got through all the checkpoints, and they walked into the imperial diet, and they were in the, uh, in the gallery, and they unfurled a banner in front of the entire imperial uh, diet, warning them of judgment if they didn't relent from what they were doing. It's incredible. Now, they were arrested. Uh, you know, the miracle wasn't that they got off scot-free. No, no, when you follow God by faith, that, that, that's, that's not a ticket to, to prosperity and success. It may be a ticket to jail. But all these miraculous events, and of course, that's where she ended up, in prison, and she was tortured and persecuted for her faith, but she won many of her uh, you know, fellow prisoners to Christ, and also uh, she won uh, one of the most cruel um, jailers there to Christ as well. But God not only sends prophets to warn the nations, then he sends natural and economic disasters. In Amos 4, it says, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. And then what does it say? Yeah, you can, you, you can say it. Yeah, yet you have not, because I'm going to have you do it again and again and again, four times, okay? So I'm going I'm to start it over again. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. I also withheld rain from you, many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew, locusts, devoured your fig and olive trees. I killed your young men with a sword, yet you have not returned to me. No, they were expected. God was, when you read it, you begin to realize that God was expecting them to recognize that it was Him who was doing this. And that's why He laments every time. And He says, yet you haven't returned to me. Like, what's the matter with you? What more do I have to do till till you wake up and see what I'm doing? Yet you have not returned to me. But often, instead of repentance, they responded with defiance. In Isaiah 9... It says, all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, that's judgment, but we will rebuild with dressed stones. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. You know, today the news stories are punctuated with weather stories isn't it true and 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 also with a lot of political unrest and murders and stuff as we've seen in the last few days again they're just punctuated with this floods droughts hurricanes earthquakes tsunamis volcanoes and so on and the typical response and i and i'm always very interested in the interviews because without exception the responses are the same. We are resilient. We will build again. Instead of repentance, instead of people, the nations falling on their faces before God and saying, what is the matter? We are resilient. We are tough. We will build again. And we hear it over and over again there's no evidence of the repentance and yet in the US alone 3 3000 abortions per day that's 1 million a year another 100,000 per year in Canada the prime minister said you can't run for the, for a, uh, for a place in the liberal party if you uh, if you're pro life when the when the major- when the conservative government had a majority they they uh, they said you cannot uh, they wouldn't tolerate debate on abortion. Is that going to lead lead to something? Oh, yes, it is leading to something. It will come. It is coming. And the problem is that many, including believers, don't believe that God is in disasters. It's all explained away scientifically. Well, of course it's scientific. It's not magic. But who's behind the science? It's God. Who's manipulating, and he—he he still, with his powerful word, according to Hebrews chapter one three, controls all things by his powerful word. He holds it all together, and so we see that it's going to come. Well, uh, he sends prophets to warn because he's patient. He sends progressive judgments of uh, of disaster and unrest and such, and then finally, God sends invading armies. And Nehemiah it says, For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. And we know that with the northern kingdom, the Assyrians um, uh, destroyed them, defeated them and destroyed them, and then assimilated them into the culture. Uh, With the southern kingdom of Judah, the Babylonians came and defeated him and took him off to Babylon, captive to to Babylon. In Jeremiah chapters 42 to 51, ten chapters are given where God says he does the same with all the nations. We see the same in the New Testament when Jesus lamented, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often... I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple and, and uh, Jerusalem because Israel rejected her God. And in 70 AD, of course, the Romans uh, destroyed, absolutely leveled uh, Jerusalem. Well, then thirdly, God relents if nations repent. He loves them. He sends progressive judgments. But if they repent, he he will relent you know what, there's some hope there. I mean, I I don't see how it can possibly happen. The only way that I can see it happening is if we begin to renew ourselves and we renew the church, and the church becomes the salt and light and begins to renew society. That's the only way it can possibly happen. But if nations repent, God often relents from His judgment. Why does he judge progressively? Because he's gracious and he's long-suffering. He wants us to repent. And if nations repent, he will relent. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, i warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. That's precisely what God did in the Jonah story. Listen to what the king of Nineveh said. He said, after, after Jonah went, and that, by the way, that's why Jonah didn't want to go, because the Assyrians, they were, they, they were a cruel nation, very cruel, very wicked. And they were the archenemy of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Jonah was from that kingdom. And so... He hated them as much as the rest of those in the northern kingdom. And now God says to him, I want you to go to your worst enemy and I want you to proclaim judgment on them and that they need to repent. And he said, I'm not going there. Because he he was afraid. Because later on in in the book of Jonah, we see that he says, I knew that you are a compassionate God and forgiving. That's why I didn't want to go in the first place. So, like, he was upset when they repented. Can you imagine a a pastor or a prophet that's upset when people repent? That'd be like if you repented and Pastor Chris said, I I can't believe it. I knew they were going to repent. I wanted to preach something else. He was upset that they repented. And uh, listen to the king. He said, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw that they what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had what? What did he have? He had compassion and he did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Is that amazing? Is that a loving, gracious, compassionate, patient God? If if that isn't, I don't know what is. Incredible. If they will not repent, however, they cross God's grace line and face final judgment. In Amos 4, he says, You have not returned to me, speaking of Israel, declares the Lord, Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel, and because I will do this to, to you, Prepare to meet your God. And those are sobering words. God says to America, God says to Canada, God says to the West, if you don't repent, prepare to meet your God. Now, somebody has an objection. Well, God was harsh in the Old Testament and he's gracious in the New Testament. And it's not true. We just saw that God gave all nations land. He wanted all to be saved. He was, he was patient with them, slow to anger. And he even relented from judgment. And why is this so important, what I'm saying right now? Because the flip side is also true. Because God is also, not only is he gracious and compassionate and loving in the New Testament, but he is still the same God. He said, I, the Lord, do not change. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And His attributes of holiness and righteousness and justice are the same in the New Testament as they were in the Old Testament. Just like there was love and grace and compassion and patience in the Old Testament, so too there is justice and righteousness and holiness coupled with love in the New Testament. And that's very important because of what we're going to come to next. But I want to share something with you that happened this week in one of the uh, mentoring uh, sessions, and I, I, have, I personally mentor ten groups. And the last one on Thursday, um, it was uh, late in the afternoon, And I looked at one of the—and, you know, I I kind of listen in prayer. It's just a little thing, and I'm looking at the screen. Who am I going to get to close in prayer? And I have different reasons for it, uh, but—and I chose one of the pastors. I won't mention him by name. He's from the Toronto area, however. And uh, and I said, Pastor so-and-so, would you please uh, close in prayer? And he said, I'd be happy to, and immediately began to pray. And as he began to pray, reams of Scripture began to pour out of him. And it was very unusual. I memorized a lot, but I I couldn't believe how much was coming, and it just just didn't seem like it was necessarily him. And all at once he got to that part that says, in your wrath, remember mercy. Do you remember that passage? He says, in your wrath, remember mercy. He was praying for Canada right then, and then he repeated it, in your wrath, remember mercy. And then he said it again, and he said it again, and then he broke down, and he began to weep. I just sat there, like I was stunned. I just thought, I haven't heard a prayer like this. This is unbelievable what just happened here. You could just sense, and everybody could just sense something very unusual happened in this prayer. Finally, he said amen, and we were all about to uh, sign out, and he said maybe I should just tell you what happened here. Just before, and he told all the pastors, he said, just before Pastor Ray asked me to pray, the Holy Spirit very strongly impressed on me and said, Pastor Ray is going to ask you to pray. And when he asks you to pray, I want you to open your mouth, and I'm going to give you the words, and I'm going to pray through you. In your wrath, remember mercy. He was praying for Canada. Anyway, we need to, uh, churches need to fear the Lord as well. The Scriptures say that. We know that Jesus loves a, loves a church. I mean, he, he founded the church. He said, I'll build my church. He said, I love the church. That's why He said, Husbands, love your wives. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her or for the church. But few realize that in the New Testament, Jesus is also evaluating and judging his churches now. It is true that he loves her, but he also is judge- evaluating and judging his churches. In John's vision, he saw Christ after his ascension as Lord of the church. And just uh, look, what it, look what it says in Revelation chapter 1. Among the stands was someone... Like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Those are the messengers of the churches. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is not the tame baby in a manger. Now, there's nothing in the church calendar. uh, The church calendar, in terms of the birth of Christ and the celebration of Christmas, is not found in the Scriptures it's not a bad tradition. I love it because I love getting gifts. I mean giving gifts. <laughs> it's a good thing. But do you know what's the problem with Christmas? It is because it has become… It, it, we keep saying that Easter is a highlight. Ascension is just about forgotten in our churches. I would say Christmas is the highlight in most churches. Then comes Easter and Ascension, maybe. And because of it, the impression we have of Jesus is in that order. Either he's a little tame baby in a manger, or maybe he's still on the cross, and he's weak, or and this one we don't even we don't even consider many times what he's like in his ascension mode, because that is what he has been for all eternity and just for a brief moment he was these other things. Is that true? And what we just read is who he is today. He is Lord of the universe. He is Lord of the church. And that's a um, that's a. That's, it's very big deal. He's not a figurehead either, like the Queen of England. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, which, chapter one, verse twenty, and two, verse one, um, uh, two, verse ten, say are the churches. And notice what he's doing. He he didn't he he didn't start the church, love the church, he says he's building it, but he's not sitting there in heaven and just kind of sitting and saying, I wonder what the church is going to do. He is directly involved with his churches. He's not sitting back. He's walking among them. Have you ever considered that? He's walking among your churches. And what was he doing? And these were, by the way, identifiable, local, geographically located churches in Asia. Seven of them in this case. Why was Jesus walking among the lampstands or the churches? What was He doing? He was evaluating them. And I'll show you how He was evaluating them. Four things I'll show you that He was evaluating. First of all, He was commending them for correct, present, present behavior— what I mean by that is in its present time. See, so often we think about, well, we do whatever we do here on earth, and then it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a roll-the-dice crapshoot, and at the end there's going to be a judgment, and we'll find out how we did. <laughs> maybe we did good. Maybe we didn't do so good. And that's not at all how it works. He is already evaluating. The evaluation doesn't just come at the end. He's evaluating now. And not only is he evaluating now, some of the judgment comes now, not just later. So take a look. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. You've persevered, have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That's commendation. He's saying good work. Good work! Keep it up! And you know what? He wanted them to know that commendation. That's why at the end of every message, every letter that he sends, he said, he who has an ear, what? Let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He is speaking to his churches, and he wants his churches to hear what he's saying. And that is an example of what he was doing. Uh, not only that, he rebuked them for bad behavior. And by the way, I, I could go through all seven of them and, and show you all the different commendations, all the rebukes, all the ta da We don't have time for that, so I'm just giving you samples. You can go back and you can read it. In verses 2 to 3, study it for yourself. But he rebuked them for a bad heart or attitudes and behavior. He said, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So he rebuked them, and he said, this is where you're not doing good on the report card. I'm evaluating you, and right now in your present time, this is where you're not doing well. And you say, well, how do you know that this isn't How how do you know that this isn't just a vision of what is going to happen at the end? Very easy, because he tells them what to do next. Repent. You can't repent at the end. It's too late to change your ways. Is that true? Then it's over. He says, now you can do something about it. So he rebukes them. And he admonished them to repent. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. He is evaluating them in their present. And he does it with us as well. And then he warned of discipline. And for, these, for this one, I'm going to show all three, uh, or three of them. Uh, first, the church of Ephesus, he said, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. To the church at tyra he said uh so i will cast her on a bed of suffering i will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways i will strike her children dead then all the churches will know that i am he listen to this then all the churches will know that i am he who searches hearts and minds in the present and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Remember where this all started at the beginning of the message. I said the love of God is the, you know, that's that, I mean, that's the, that's the core, that's the center. That's where we have, you know, that's where we experience fellowship with God and we experience abundant life and all those. But it's the fear of God that keeps us within those bounds where we can experience those things and, uh, and, and have reward at the, uh, reward at the end. The church of Pergamum, "'Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth.'" After his ascension, Jesus isn't sitting idly by. No, he's speaking to and ruling his churches. And notice he says to one of them in Ephesus, he said, "'I'm going to remove your lampstand if you don't repent.'" She would be rejected by the lo- ruling Lord as, as no longer being one of His churches. You know, I wonder how many churches have a sign on but them, but Jesus isn't present. It's not... A, 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 he's gone. There's no lampstand there. They call themselves a church. But as far as Jesus is concerned, it's not a church, because if just the body is there and the head isn't there, it's not a church. Is that true? I mean, it happened in the Old Testament. The spirit left the temple. We, you know, when Fran's father was dying, we sat around the bedside there, and all at once, uh, he his spirit left. It was an amazing thing to see. Many of you have seen that uh, similar kind of thing, and we we talked around the uh, around the bedside for a while, and then all at once, one of us looked at, and we said, "He isn't here." we may as well leave. When Jesus isn't in a church, maybe we may as well leave, too, and find out where He is, or repent so that He comes back. Amen? Yeah, maybe. But before it gets to that, Jesus disciplines the church. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Ananias and Sapphira, you know the story, and they conspired in the, in the New Testament, in chapter 5. They conspired that they would sell the land for so much, and then, but they would say they only got this much, and then that's what they would give to, uh, to the apostles. And so Ananias was first, and he got there, and, and uh, he said, well, we sold some property here, and this is how much we got for it, and so we're given the whole thing. And right then the Spirit said to Peter, he just lied. And Peter said, you didn't lie to me, you lied to God. And with that, he fell over dead. And it says, great fear came upon the whole church. Sapphira came in not long after that, and Peter didn't even wait for her report. He said, did you sell it for this much? and she said yes yes we did and just and and he said you also lied to the spirit and she fell over dead and it says great fear seized the church now i know a lot of people think that's an isolated case not so not so in first corinthians chapter 11 It says a man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then verse 30, he says, that is why many, how many? Many Many among you are what? Weak and? And a number of you have even fallen asleep. Why does the Lord judge like this? Because He is holy. Jesus is holy. He is loving, but He is, he is love, but he's also consuming fire. <clears throat> he is holy. And in 1 Corinthians 11:32, just a couple of verses later, it says, "When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world." Now I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, most of you know me well enough. I'm not saying, and we talk lots about suffering here, I'm not saying that everything bad that happens to a person is because of sin, direct sin in their life. No, not at all. I've never believed that. And uh, all you have to do is look at a story like Job, and uh, Satan comes to visit God in, in, the, uh, in heaven, in the course of heaven, and Satan says, and, and God says to Satan, by the way, have you noticed my righteous servant Job? There's none like him. And then, and then uh, Satan puts him up to, a, uh, up, to, up to the whole thing and says, well, then why don't we test that? I think he just loves you because of the blessings you give him. And so away it went, and he experienced tremendous amounts of suffering, but not because he had sinned directly. But my point is... So many times when we suffer or, th- or when things get tough or there's a problem or there's something, instead of stopping to listen and say, Lord, are you disciplining me for something? That's about the last thing we check on the list. Do you see what I'm saying? That should be one of the first things we ask. Just get that out of the way. Lord, is this happening to me because there's something wrong? And then he says, no, you're good. He doesn't show you anything. Then you, keep on the, then you keep on going. There's many reasons why he allows suffering. One of them sometimes is discipline, and discipline is an important one, because that's how we stay within the bounds of the relationship with God where we experience his love and abundant life. Is that true? The answer is yes. Is that true? Yeah, it is. It is true. So, fear of the Lord is a is a gift from a gracious, loving Heavenly Father. I want you to think of it like this. You know, when when I was go when I when I was going to school, uh, you know, exams they can be they can they can be a nerve wracking kind of thing, and you don't know how you're going to do. But I, there was this one teacher that would give us the exam two weeks before. It was a different one than the, the real one. But when we, when we did that one, we'd all do very poorly on it. But after that, we knew exactly what we needed to know. And on the exam, we aced it. We aced the final exam. Now, do you like a teacher like that, yes or no? That's what God is like. He is evaluating. Jesus is evaluating now, and he's marking now. Why? So that at the final examination, you can stand with confidence without shrinking back, as Peter said. Is that true? That's why he does it. Isn't that loving? Huh? Is that gracious? Is that compassionate? What an amazing God we have. What an amazing Jesus we serve. So how can we grow in the fear of the Lord? The first one is meditate on God's goodness and severity. Uh, Romans chapter 11 says that, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So he says, I don't want you to skip all the passages that sound tough and just go to the love pieces. I want you to consider the other side of me because, you see, God's attributes all, have, always have to be held in tension together. You can't say, well, he's all love, but he's not this. Or you can't say he's all this, but he's not this. Uh, God cannot deny himself. They, you have to hold them all in tension together. And uh, so that's very important. We're called to consider both God's goodness and severity. God warned that unbelievers will give account at the great white throne judgment. He said, I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. They fled from his presence. Think about that. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Now the book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, and if any man's name was not found written in it, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That, the substance of what he's saying there is difficult, the fact that he includes it in here and says, meditate on that, is gracious and loving and compassionate, because there's no excuse. But it's not just the unbeliever. It's the believer that has to stand, for we must all stand before Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's, he's speaking to believers. He says, that if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hair, straw, his work will be shown for uh, what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. A few verses down, actually, it even talks about the motives behind it. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. That's why he evaluates now, that's why he evaluates our hearts. Because, and he judges now, and he disciplines. And consider any past discipline, second. Don't just meditate on, it, but also consider when you've been disciplined. Because Hebrews says um, that, uh, that he disciplines those that he loves. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 11, 10 11, he says, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Do you know the secret for me at age 64, 30 years of lead pastor ministry, and seven years now launching and leading a, a growing church renewal ministry, international, the key for me staying on the straight and narrow has been the fear of God not the love of God. Oh, again, you understand what I'm saying? Oh, I feed on the love of God, no question about it. But what has kept me in the love of God has been the discipline that I received that gave me a healthy fear of the Lord. You see what I'm saying? And he says that. He said, in fact, he goes on to say, verse 5 to 8, he said, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as what? As what? Yeah, for what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not, now now, listen to this. If you are not disciplined, then you are illegitimate children, not true sons. If you're a Christian here, and I, re- and I said, have, have you ever been disciplined by God? The answer should be unanimous, yes. Now, you might not have always recognized it, and that's the problem. We don't always listen. When he, and He wants us to listen, and so it's very, very important that we do that. Too few Christians consider that bad in their lives may be God's discipline. They just assume it must be an attack from Satan, that you just got to get out of your life, or just the course of this world. They don't ask the Lord what He thinks. So in Revelation two twenty nine again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So here's my encouragement to you this week, uh, your to-do, your weekly challenge, as Chris puts it. Uh, to go home, and you can begin with commendation, just that same list if you like. Start with commendation. God, what, you know, what do you like? But that's usually where we are. You know, what do you like about me? What do you see when you uh, look at me? You know, those kinds of questions, and we listen, and we write those out. But it's time for us to mature and go to the next step and say, what don't you like? Is that true? Because it's just as important for us to know what He doesn't like as it is for us to know what He likes so that we can change and align with Him. He's a holy God. Amen? Uh, Tonight at the prayer summit at 6 to 8, how many of you are coming? Quite a few? Yeah, that's going to be amazing. (laughs) uh, For the personal exercise, we're going to do that together. Would that be good to do it together? Yeah, we're going to do it together. I'm going to do it too. And we'll we'll uh, we'll do that uh, tonight together. Well, we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing. Uh, we're going to sing a song about God in uh, just a moment. Lord, thank you for this time together. Uh, this is um, this has been sobering, but we thank you that you tell us the truth. Um, not the varnished truth, not half-truth, not partial truth. Thank you that you tell it to us straight, but in still a very gracious and compelling way. Thank you that you convict us on the one hand, and yet your conviction is not condemning. Somehow your conviction is something that draws us to you. And so, Lord, we say to you this morning, that we choose to grow in the fear of the Lord. We ask you to help us to grow not only in loving you and receiving your love, but also in fearing you in a healthy way that will keep us within the bounds of a relationship where we can know you even better. And then we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.